Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I'm joined today, as every week, by Simon Elliott, head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. Simon, here we are. It's been actually quite a nice week where I am. Uh, but what's been happening in the market? It's been a lot of excitement on the football field, obviously, but uh, has that spread over to the uh, the markets this week? Well, it has been an interesting week for the markets, as always. Um, <laughs> football has obviously provided a, a talking point through the week, but really it's been a, a bit of an up and down week for the UK market. It will finish uh, round about flat on the week, but that disguises the fact that we we'll to see a, a little bit of a sell-off towards the latter stages of the week before we had a, a recovery at the end. Investment companies, the investment company sector have probably done a little bit better and they will find themselves in positive territory. The sector average discount has moved around a little bit. It'll probably end the week nearer to 3% after being a little bit wider than that at some stages. But in general, I think markets are a little bit on the choppy side at the moment. Clearly, there are fears about um, how strong the global economic recovery really is. I think there's a realisation that the Delta variant that obviously we know all about in the UK is going to be a significant headwind uh, across the world. Uh, and there's obviously been a lot of talk about the central banks and the European Central Bank came out this week and provided some more guidance in terms of how they intended to play inflation. But uh, we were looking at the VIX index earlier today. So the fear index and just seeing how that's performed. And after averaging uh, around about 20 so far this week, it had fallen to a low on the 2nd of July of 15, but actually picked up subsequently. Uh, but just to put some context on that, back on the 16th of March last year, it hit a high of 83. So we're a long, long way off that kind of level of volatility that we saw last year. Yeah, so my impression is this year, I mean, the, the market has gone up. Equity markets have gone up generally around the world. And uh, there hasn't yet been a, a really significant correction. I think the biggest drawdown so far is 6% I was reading. So that's uh, fairly unusual in a way. But what about trading levels? How are they uh, going at the moment? Are we entering the summer lull? You made reference the last couple of weeks to the fact that volumes are down. Is that uh, that trend is continuing, I imagine? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, trading volume is thin. Fortunately, we have the football, we have Wimbledon, and there's even a little bit of cricket on as well. So the market makers are keeping themselves busy. But uh, yes, it is quieter and one suspects that will probably be unchanged now for the next few months. And it's often said that uh, in August, the big boys go off to the beach, it's often said. Uh, in other words, the big, uh, well-known fund managers with lots of money to manage go off to the beach. We're not quite sure whether they'll do that this year, but I imagine they'll find a way uh, if they can. So we might expect this kind of uh, low levels of trading to persist perhaps uh, through to September when historically all the big boys will be coming back. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's obviously a lot of discussion about when we're going to see people go back to the office. Clearly, some people are already at their desks and uh, many are working virtually, clearly. But I think the consensus seems to be that um, expect a back to school moment in early September. And uh, in terms of the markets, one suspects that will be the moment that people will reassess where we are. Hopefully by then we'll have a kind of better handle on things such as uh, the Delta variant, uh, how well the vaccine rollouts are going, not just in the UK, clearly about around the rest of the world. And one suspects we, we might see a bit of a move in the market direction as we go into September and indeed October. Indeed. There's also some issues around uh, what the central banks are going to do. We saw this week that the European Central Bank has, as I read it, has agreed to effectively copy what the Fed is doing. And uh, instead of having a specific 2% target, it's going to 
tolerate a little bit of inflation above that level, as long as it averages out around 2%. That's what the Fed has done so far. And the Bank of England may also uh, come out and say what it's planning to do in that respect quite soon, I believe. So anyway, let's move on and talk about the corporate activity this week in our normal order of events. Let's start off with the aptly named GCP student living whose ticker is Diggs. There's something to say about that, I think. Yeah, no, interesting development for GCP student living. So the board of Diggs uh, came out this week and actually it was in response to some press speculation. They confirmed that they had received a series of non-binding proposals for the entire issued share capital of the fund, uh, other than those managed by an outfit called APG Asset Management. So basically, this is an approach as, again, non-binding. We'll talk about that in a minute, what that means. But a consortium including Scape Living and an outfit called IQSA Holdco. And so, you know, what does it mean? Well, the share price went better on the back of that announcement. But it's important to note in the announcement uh, the board made it clear they, they they remain in discussions with the consortium, but, and this is the kind of key point here, they're anticipating a material increase to the fund's property valuation for the period to the 30th of June 2021. Um, now, the consortium are required uh, by no later than 5pm on the 30th of July, either to announce a firm intention to make an offer for the fund or announce that it does not intend uh, to make an offer, though uh, they can extend that deadline if they get the consent of the takeover panel. So this is not technically a takeover bid, as it said, it's a non-binding proposals. Um, as I said, the share price went significantly better on the back of this, and it is now trading on a, on a premium about 8-9% to its last NAV, which is as at uh, the 31st of March. But as the board were quick to point out, that's that's a stale valuation point now. They expect to see, as they call it, a material increase for their next quarterly uh, valuation. So it's non-binding in the sense that they can withdraw, but as you say, it's now under takeover panel rules. So what does that say, if anything, about their ability to come back with a, with a perhaps a more precise question of the price they're prepared to pay and, uh, and so on? Now, that's a really good point because as yet, the price has not been put on the table. So we don't know the level at which they're talking about. So this is a slightly odd, I mean, takeover bids in the investment company sector are relatively rare. Um, I mean, in, during the course of the 18 months or so that we've been doing this podcast, I think we've possibly had one, maybe two. Uh, and that would seem to be the, the frequency in general. This is made even more unusual, as I said, by the fact that we, we don't know the level that they're looking at. And one suspects they too will be quite keen to see that valuation point as at the end of June. And they've clearly got a number in mind. I mean, at, on the back of this announcement, we saw the share price jump up. It was just north of 160p. Uh, it's now trading at 194p. So that's quite a material uplift. And again, um, I think all eyes will be on that uh, valuation point. Though interestingly enough, as I mentioned, they have until the 30th of July to kind of put up or shut up or at least get an extension. But that uh, revaluation, uh, last year at least, the 30th of June NAV came out on the 31st of July, uh, so a day later. So that'll be interesting to see exactly how the timing around this one works. Indeed, that might be. <laughs> well, I can see some scope for a little bit of game playing around that. Absolutely. Uh, but of course, the board will be mindful of what's in the shareholders' best interest, of course, and uh, they won't be able to uh, ignore that, uh, I don't think, just for some sort of tactical reason, you'd imagine, anyway, at least you'd hope so. So what was the NAV at the 31st of March? Yep. Yeah, so certainly the, the valuation that we are looking at it at, um, we've got around about 178 spot 8 as our kind of current valuation. 
Um, as I mentioned, they're trading at 194p uh, at the moment. So that puts them on a, on a reasonable premium, about 8 or 9% or so. But yes, it's a, the question, you know, uh, what, what is this company actually worth? Clearly, student living has been hit very hard over the last uh, 18 months for very, very obvious reasons. This particular fund um, in, initially paid its dividend, but then had to rebase it, uh, i.e. cut it uh, quite heavily. So before the pandemic, I think they were running at an annual dividend of 6.15p. They've cut that back to 0.25p per quarter, in other words, an annualised uh, 1p dividend. Uh, though, to be fair, that is now covered. So uh, there is still a huge amount of uncertainty, one would suspect, with the, this whole kind of asset class on a short-term view. How long will it take before student property really bounces back? And again, I think there has been some guidance from this and from others in its field, uh, how they're looking for the kind of September academic year onwards. But, uh, you know, a very interesting situation. If, if a bid does come in, people are going to have to uh, make some quite educated guesses on what this company is really worth. Very good. <laughs> and they will be educated, I'm sure. I mean, I guess the market price 194p, that says either that, you know, the market is expecting that this new NAV will come in obviously significantly higher than the one you quoted just now, or that there will be a bid and it will be at a premium, or who knows what could happen apart from that. So that seems to be the presumption anyway. Presumably, therefore, one can deduce that this is perhaps I might say a sort of somewhat opportunistic attempt to get involved in uh, in this particular trust at a good price, perhaps caused by the dislocation uh, of the pandemic. We'll be interested to see what what, uh, what comes out. Let's move on and talk about third point investors, TPOU. This is the hedge fund run by Dan Loeb, which has been uh, attempting to reduce its uh, discount, but also been having something of a bit of a barney with its uh, some of its uh, prominent shareholders. So perhaps you could fill us in on the latest in this particular saga. Yes, I think this this promises to be a bit of a long-running saga, to be honest. We talked a number of weeks ago about how AVI Asset Value Investors, who are responsible for AVI Global Trust, had written a letter, uh, a very colourful letter, I think we we discussed it at length at the time, to the board of Third Point Investors. Well, they've written another letter, uh, and this time they've requisitioned an EGM alongside some other investors and basically, they're looking for a vote on a resolution to change the fund's investment policy. Uh, and this is all about the discount at which it trades on, uh, which AVI uh, asset value investors have described as persistent and entrenched. So basically, their proposal is that third point investors would use its uh, ability to redeem shares in the master fund, which it which it feeds effectively, uh, and use those proceeds to provide a redemption on a quarterly basis up to 25% at NAV less costs. So that's their big idea. Before they had an issue over the because of the voting structure of third point investors, which is not entirely straightforward. So that's why they've kind of got some support to make their vote count effectively. Now, the board of third point investors so far have confirmed that they've received the letter and they're going to look at it. They're going to review the request with their advisors and they'll make a further announcement in due course. But since that announcement, the actual annual general meeting of this investment company has been held. And although all the resolutions were passed, there was quite a substantial amount of votes or shares voted against the re-election of one of the directors, a chap called Joss Targoff, who's actually general counsel at third point, so a connected persons. So 37% of the votes were cast against that. And again, the, the board have acknowledged that and said they will consult with shareholders to understand the reasons for this. But clearly, this is a tussle underway here with asset value investors and third point. Uh, Dan Loeb's obviously the lead figure there. 
uh, and one wonders who's going to be successful. Third point to put on the table, uh, a mechanism by which uh, shareholders and third-point investors can switch into the master fund at a 7.5% discount. Um, that's obviously not to asset value investors. So again, one wonders kind of how this one's going to be resolved. And really, I suspect asset value investors are going to need more support from other shareholders on the register. But just in terms of the technicalities of this, I mean, a quarterly redemption, that's uh, slightly unusual, isn't it? I don't think we see many of those. You do find a few, actually. So obviously, we don't talk too much about uh, the debt sector for various reasons, but it is now a contracting part of the investment company's universe. But a number of those investment companies uh, provide uh, quarterly redemption mechanisms. We have seen it before with some of the hedge funds of yesteryear. Um, Basically, in order to address persistent discounts, they put something similar on the table. So I think it's fair to say it would be unusual for a kind of plain vanilla investment trust company, but not entirely unusual for something a bit more specialist. Basically, this boils down to the fact that the arrangement with the master fund is that they can have a redemption on a quarterly basis. So asset value investors' big idea would seem to be they back-to-back that with a redemption facility to to shareholders. I think that's where they're coming with this. So they want to get on a kind of equal standing in that respect. That makes sense. And I guess because of the nature of what uh, third-point investors does, I mean, having regular redemptions is not necessarily a problem. It's not like they've got a lot of unlisted investments and things that they couldn't realise very quickly. Is that the case? I mean, how closely do you follow what actually third point investors are actually doing in this in this trust? Yeah, no, it's a good point. I mean, there, there's a whole range of asset classes in there. Uh, I mean, some will be less liquid than others, clearly. But, you know, as I mentioned, the fact is, in terms of their master fund, at least, they do offer this quarterly redemption facilities, my understanding, this 25%. So, um, you know, they're obviously confident that they can they can sustain that. And in terms of, I mean, AVI, as I think we discussed last time, they're, they're not just acting for themselves, they're acting, they say, for one or two others as well. What impact has this had so far in terms of, obviously, the, the discount that which uh, third-point investors is trading? Is it actually having any effect? Uh, is it actually doing the work for the board that uh, AVI say they should have been doing anyway? Well, I can tell you that Third Point uh, Investors has, has performed quite well this year. We have seen the share price move up uh, materially. So it's up about 28% or so year to date. Uh, it still remains on a discount, though. So it's a US dollar quoted stock, I should say, but it's on about a, an, I've got it on an 11% discount at present. That compares with an average over the previous 12 months of about 19%. So in other words, the discount has tightened you know, reasonably material. And I mean, obviously, the board have taken steps and measures to narrow the discount. But then in addition, they've had asset value investors rattling the cage as well. So who knows who's had the bigger influence, but probably the combination has certainly helped drive that discount in. Good. Well, it's a good illustration of, of the kind of uh, activism that we can see happen in the investment trust world. Uh, and it does seem as a general proposition, I mean, we talked about last week, that boards are becoming more conscious of their, or at least if you take a 10 or 20 year view, become more conscious of the need to look after the discount and to respond to shareholder concerns. We commented last week about how uh, the Genesis Fidelity uh, deal suggested a a board was perhaps more alert to uh, how things trade than they were perhaps would have been in the past. So that's a very interesting development. I mean, last time AVI wrote a letter, there was some quite colourful language. Have we had any more along those lines this time round? Well, the, the, the colourful language was invariably because they were quoting um, Mr. Daniel Loeb from his various public utterances. And probably the quote that um, they, they've taken issue with the fact that uh, this complicated capital structure they have in place is there to address various regulatory issues in the US. 
But uh, apparently, according to the quote in the letter, Asset Value Investors letter, Daniel Lope said that this Class B shares were, quote, put in place specifically to protect our long-term investors from short-term profiteers who are looking to make a quick buck by trying to liquidate or diminish the amount of capital that we have invested. So I suspect that was probably pointed a little bit towards asset value investors who noted that and actually noted, I think, that the, the recording of this comment was actually deleted or that particular bit of it was deleted from the official recording. So asset value investors, happy to point that out. Indeed. Anything to score a point, I guess. OK, well, let's move on and talk about uh, perhaps some happier news in, in some respects. And that's fundraising. We always talk about fundraising. And it's been a pretty good year so far for fundraising, as we might discuss in a moment. But uh, let's kick off with uh, Augmentum Fintech, AUGM. Yes, Augmentum Fintech. So they'd announced uh, that they were looking to raise £40 million and they had an investment pipeline lined up for it. Actually, early on this week, they said, well, they were going to increase that target fundraising from 40 to 55. And in fact, that's exactly where it came in. So um, they were successful. They raised £55 million. That was through the issuance of 40.6 million shares at a price of 135.5p. Uh, and that was apparently heavily oversubscribed. So applications under open offer entitlements were met in full, but uh, everyone else basically was scaled back. And those new shares begin trading on Tuesday next week, the 13th of July. But it's worth noting um, that the last time they came to the market to raise uh, new money, that was back in November last year, they raised £28 million. Again, it was oversubscribed, and that was at a price of 120p. So clearly they are getting some traction. And what is the share price as of you know close of play today? How has that been absorbed? So the share price closed the week at 147 spot 5p. Um, so again, up about 9p on the day. So um, yeah, it's traded. It's trading well. So that would have been a nice one to get involved in if you had so far at least on the strength of one day's trading. Let's move on and talk about another trust that we do seem to mention quite a lot, and uh, that is Hypnosis Songs Fund. Song is the ticker. And they promised they were going to raise some more money. And they also promised it would be the last time for, well, at least a blink of an eye. Uh, you might tell us on what the details are on that uh, and uh, how they've got on with this latest fundraising. Uh, they've got on uh, well with it. Yes, it's another oversubscribed placing. They raised £156 million, and that exceeded their target of £150 million. Um, so they placed out £128.6 million new shares, and that was at a price of £100 21 p per share that's about a two percent premium to their operative nav but yeah as you correctly mentioned the guidance they've given on this is that um, they don't expect to issue any new shares for cash until their nav as at the end of march next year so 2022 is published but um as we've talked about this one before they have raised quite a lot of capital uh, over the last few years the last time they came to the market was back in may uh, and the issued shares are 119 spot 5p and then back in february it was at 121p so this seems to be the kind of broad range but they are now at a market cap of about 1.3 billion pounds and uh, that share price uh, has closed where at 121p so exactly on the on the placing price right precision marketing but we can also compare that price to the uh, latest results uh, that have been produced by hypnosis they came out this week, and uh, what did it show? That's right. They announced their final results or their annual results for the year to the 31st of March. And uh, yeah, a pretty decent set of results. Their total operative NAV return, and this is in dollars, was up 15.7%. Uh, their like for like valuation uplift was 10.4%, and that was apparently as a result of increased streaming and discount rate reduction. 
Uh, so they've obviously been very busy on the acquisition front. They've acquired 84 catalogs in the year at a cost of about 1.1 billion US dollars. And that brings the total portfolio to 132 catalogs comprising 64,000 songs. And that's been acquired at a cost of $1.9 billion. So the whole portfolio now is valued at $2.2 billion. Uh, and that represents a 13.6% uplift on its cost value. Um, but they've also given some guidance as well in terms of the uh, annual dividend. The dividend target's been increased by 5% to 5.25p per share. Okay, so uh, we said before that they have raised a lot of money and that the, the share price has reached 121p. Uh, so there has been a gain, and we'll see how it plays out from here. Let's move on and talk about another trust which is seeking to raise some money, and this is actually Hydrogen One Capital, H-G-E-N, if it gets to market. <laughs> that sounds like a uh, a fairly specialist vehicle. Uh, what can you tell us about this one, uh, Simon? Well, I think you're right. I think this is a specialist vehicle. They're, they're seeking to raise £250 million through uh, an IPO, and perhaps as the name would suggest, they're looking to provide access to clean hydrogen through investment in a diversified portfolio of hydrogen and complementary hydrogen-focused assets. Uh, and it's really about delivering capital growth. Uh, and unsurprisingly, they have a strong ESG focus. Um, it will predominantly be invested in um, private hydrogen assets. I think they're talking about 90% of the portfolio um, and also include hydrogen-focused listed assets as well from global markets. Um, but they talk about 36 potential uh, investments lined up. And uh, obviously, they want to have some diversification in the portfolio to diversify out some of the kind of key risks. But they've got an NAV total return target of between 10 and 15% per annum over the medium to long term, which, as you will know, is quite a, an ambitious uh, return target to hit. Um, but they've also got a cornerstone investment of £25 million from Ineos, Jim Ratcliffe's chemical company, and that's subject to a 12-month lockup. Uh, but we'll find out how this one goes. Uh, at the end of the month, the IPO closes on the 27th of July. Okay, so this obviously does play, as you say, into the ESG narrative. And clean hydrogen is an interesting um, possibility in terms of uh, achieving carbon reduction in the atmosphere, because essentially, as I understand it, it takes power that's generated from hydrocarbons and turns it into a cleaner and crucially storable different form of energy. So we should see how this one goes. Having a cornerstone investor would, one imagines, uh, particularly a well-known name like uh, Jim Ratcliffe's company, uh, might give this one uh, some legs, might it not? I think it's certainly helpful. I mean, you know, as we mentioned, this is clearly a more specialist type mandate. I mean, it plays to investors' demand for ESG-friendly products. Um, they would argue, I'm sure, that they are quite differentiated uh, and exposure to private assets as well. So in other words, this would be a portfolio one would assume that will not be easily replicable. In other words, you couldn't just go out to the public listing markets and buy the kind of companies that they're looking to buy. So I think that's what they have in their favour. But as always with investment trust companies, as we've discussed in weeks gone by, to get the critical mass to get these companies up and running is not altogether straightforward on day one. So the fact they have a, a meaningful cornerstone investment is clearly an advantage. And you kind of think, uh, at least I tend to think that, you know, the higher the target return, the greater the risk involved. Maybe that's uh, rather simplistic thinking. But I mean, uh, if we talk about another proposed launch that I don't think we've heard anything about at the time of this recording anyway, which is the Seraphim Space Investment Trust, that was targeting, as I recall, something over 20% per annum. And that would certainly put it into a higher risk category because a lot of it was uh, pre-profit and indeed pre-revenue in some cases uh, 
little companies that serve the space business expanding into uh, into new areas. As at this time of recording, have we heard from the end results of that one? I think it has closed. Uh, no, is the short answer. We're, we're waiting to hear. In all fairness, it, it can sometimes take a little bit of time just to sort out the book on these things, but uh, no doubt we'll find out in the very near future. Yes, indeed, though I think it's uh, this is the reverse of uh, traditional accounting, where it's always said that the longer it takes to add up the numbers, the less likely they are to be real. Uh, but presumably when you're raising money, uh, it does take a little bit longer if you raise either a lot of money or not quite enough. But uh, we'll find out soon enough, as you say. Let's move on and talk about uh, Octopus Renewables Infrastructure Trust, O-R-I-T. They had a placing, and uh, how has that gone? Well, yet again, another oversubscribed placing. Initially, I think they were looking to raise $100 million. That came in at $150 million, uh, and that, I think, even in itself, still remained oversubscribed. So that was positive for them. It was placed, 144.9 million shares were placed at 103.5p. And those new shares began trading at the end of the week on Friday, on the 9th of July. So what happened, Simon? I mean, you said they were placed at 103.5p. How did they finish the week? Yeah, no, perhaps unsurprisingly, given that the issue was oversubscribed, they ended up up at 105p. So compared with the 103.5p placing price. Yeah, so one of the things that's interesting, actually, about this, you know, if you're a private investor, for example, it's quite interesting to compare how the market performs after these placings. You know, if they use primary bid or some other or broker offers, you can often get in on the placing or you can in some cases get in on the placing. But even if you can't, it's quite often still possible to get in if you actually like what's being offered. Uh, you can get in quite close to the placing price afterwards. So that would be true, I think, probably of, of ORIT if you uh, weren't on the magic list and got called about that one. But wouldn't be true of Augmentum Fintech, where you would have missed the opportunity to get in at that price. Let's talk about Addition Investment Trust, OIT. They said something about the placing? That's right. Yeah, they raised just short of £6 million this week. And this was a reflection of the fact that they had demand from related parties. So Howard Capital, uh, who related to the investment manager and indeed the fund's largest shareholder, they uh, wanted 2.6 million new shares on behalf of their clients. Uh, in addition, um, the principles of the portfolio manager, so Dissian Capital, they wish to uh, invest for at least 370,000 new shares. So um, a placing was organised that was done at 158p per share, which represented a 1% premium to the NAV uh, at the end of uh, the 6th of July. Uh, and that raised, as I say, £5.8 million. Right. So that doesn't seem like a lot of money in the context of what we're, <laughs> what we've been talking about, the sums involved. Uh, but you would generally think that would be a vote of confidence if you saw placings arranged specifically for for those who uh, actually have already have an interest in the trust. I think that's how many people would see it, certainly. And also, it's it's some kind of liquidity event. So one of the things that people often talk about in terms of investment trust companies, particularly those uh, smaller in size, is the difficulty to acquire meaningful lumps of shares, if you will. So if you're if you're just looking to invest your ISA money invariably the vast majority of investment trust companies is not a problem. But if you wish to put a number of million pounds at work, as, as many of the wealth managers do, then that can become an issue. So providing a, a placing at a premium to NAV is one way to uh, address that. And clearly that's that's been the case in this instance. Okay, so we might just quickly talk about how much money has been raised in the UK market uh, investment trust sector so far this year. I mean, the numbers, uh, they feel like they've been pretty good because we've been talking an awful lot about it. No, they have been good. They have been good. So basically, the first six months of 2021, 
we have seen uh, 6.8 billion pounds raised across the sector. Now that's 150% higher than for the first six months of last year. Admittedly, that was a little bit of a funny year, as I think we can all agree. But even if we go back to 2019, the comparable period was actually, we saw five billion pounds raised and that was a very strong year as well. So we're ahead of that. So although there's been some comments uh, in the media that fundraising conditions in the investment company sector uh, are proving problematic, the reality would seem to be a little different. Indeed, but most of that money has come in the form of secondary issuance rather than in terms of IPOs. Or what's the IPO number and how does that compare? Yeah, so it's a good point. The breakdown is about 19% has come through IPOs, which is a reasonably healthy number. On the secondary side, it's 68%. And then obviously, we have C shares as well. So that's about 12% and a few other bits and pieces. But those subsectors that have proven particularly uh, popular, probably no great surprise to what we've been discussing, infrastructure, 35%, over a third of the money's raised has gone into infrastructure, one type or another, private equity, 15%, and, and that's a lot of that will be uh, the Shehalian Fund that we talked about earlier in the year. But also for those kind of long-standing mandates in the UK global uh, equity type mandates, they've raised about 22% of the, of the pie. So again, they seem to be doing quite well. So it's definitely been a good period for the supply of shares in the investment trust sector. Let's move on and talk about uh, some results now. JP Morgan Global Core Real Assets, J-A-R-A. This is one we mentioned, I think, uh, earlier this year. Uh, it's an interesting one because, you know, JP Morgan claimed to be one of the, the leaders in uh, in real asset management, you know, acquiring things that aren't, uh, that are basically essentially over time inflation linked, or you hope they are. But it's always remained quite small, this trust. So what have their results been like? Well, they announced annual results for the year to the end of February, in which time their NAV total return uh, was down about 6%, 5.9% to be more precise, uh, although the share price return was down just 1%. However, a lot of that was actually as a result of currency. So those returns were in sterling. However, if you strip out that uh, the currency mismatch, then the figures look a lot better. And the total return was actually 2.1%. Um, in fact, over the year, the US dollar exposure fell from 92% to 66% uh, of the NAV. But uh, you, to your point about the size, they have been uh, able to issue new shares. So just over 8 million shares were issued during the period, uh, raising uh, $8.7 And they do have a, a C share prospectus uh, that remains active. But this is now a fully invested vehicle. It IPO'd a number of years ago, actually. And also, and I suspect investors will be quite interested in this, they are uh, on track to get to their 4 to 6p target annual dividend. Uh, they're not quite there at the moment. Their dividends of 3.25p uh, were declared and paid in respect of this particular year. So just looking at that in terms of yield, I mean, the share price is still below the issue price. I think it's somewhere around 93p or something like that. So uh, they're not yet fully up to speed, essentially, even though they're getting close to it, as you say. Yeah, no, I think that's right. One of the key factors here has been the, the currency. That seems to have been one of the key drivers. That's kind of pushed them into, into negative territory. But um, yeah, I mean, I think the point you made earlier is absolutely spot on that this is a, a vehicle to give access to the, the, the platform that JP Morgan Asset Management have in terms of their real assets. And that includes real estate, infrastructure, transport, uh, as well as what they describe as liquid real assets as well. So in terms of the mandate, I think it's one that they're internally quite excited about, but it's still in the relatively early stage of this this particular investment trust building a track record. Yes, and it would be given how well you know some of these other real asset trusts, uh, including infrastructure and so on, have done. You'd think that if they can get that right, get the proposition right, and the uh, scale it up and get to fully invested, then uh, you'd think there would be some demand for that one. At least I would have thought so. 
but we don't know yet. We'll find out. Okay, then we want to talk about some UK trust results, uh, and let's kick off with Artemis Alpha Trust, ATS. They've had some annual results out, and uh, how they performed. They had annual results to the 30th of April, in which time their NEV total return was up 56%, and that compares to a rise of 26% for the FTSE All Share. In share price terms, they did even better, actually up nearly 81% as their discount narrowed from about 20% into about a 7%. They did buy some shares back in the period, but really this was driven by some strong stock selection. So their top contributors over the period were companies such as Dignity, Fraser's Group and Delivery Hero, although there were a few things that didn't work out quite so well for them, such as Hurricane Energy, GlaxoSmithKline and Capital Encounters. But um, it's an interesting portfolio. It's managed by John Dodd and Kartik Kumar and a number of interesting themes in it. So online food delivery is the largest theme. I think that's about 13% or so of the portfolio. Um, also a big weighting to UK house builders, about 12%, and airlines, uh, 12%. But this investment trust had a bit of a reboot uh, probably about three years or so ago now. It went from being very mid and small cap focused to uh, mid and large cap. And that's about 80% of the portfolio now and far more concentrated. So the number of holdings was reduced from 80 to 30. That's obviously led to uh, improvement in performance. But they've got uh, a tender offer. It's a triennial tender offer on the table that will happen later this year. That's for up to 25% of the shares of this company. Yes, it's an interesting one. It's one I've been following. And in fact, if you are a subscriber to the Moneymaker Circle, I just uh, this week on Thursday, in fact, had a conversation with Kartik Kumar, who is a very uh, impressive and uh, young man. He's still a very young I think he's the youngest fund manager in the sector, but he's incredibly enthusiastic and uh, I have to say uh, makes a, a good impression. And uh, it's been an interesting trust because it was languishing on a very big discount when they changed the strategy, if you like, and refocused it. And uh, certainly in the last year, it's done uh, pretty well. So it'll be interesting to see how it gets on when we get to that tender offer moment later in the year. Uh, OK, so move on and talk about um, Mighton UK Microcap. They've also produced their annual results. And if you thought that Artemis Alpha did well, then you better think again, because these guys did a whole lot better. You're not wrong. And it's actually for the same period. It's the annual results to the end of April. Their NAV total return was up 104%. And that compared to a rise of just short of 70% for the FTSE small cap, or even 60% for FTSE AIM all share. In share price terms, they were up 141.5% in that particular period. Though I think it's worth saying that when we look at results to the 31st of March or 30th of April, as is the case here, then I think it's worth remembering that 12 months earlier, the market conditions were quite different uh, and we have seen a big rebound. But all credit to Mighton UK Microcap. This is all about the, the stock selection. They've got very experienced uh, management team. Gervais Williams and Martin Turner of Premier Mighton Group uh, have been running this one since launch. Companies that perform well for them in the period included Jubilee Metals, Argo Blockchain, uh, Avecta and Synergen is how I think you pronounce that one. Um, they obviously had some that didn't work quite so well for them. They do have a, an annual uh, redemption facility with this one. There are a number of investment trusts that have a similar mechanism. Um, and in this particular year, they saw 2.4% of the share capital uh, look to exit around NAV at their 30th of June redemption point. Yeah, so this is this is way down the market capitalization scale. And I think as a firm, Winter Floods, every month without a review of the market, and uh, small cap has done exceptionally well this uh, six months this year, it's fair to say, indeed, over the last 12 months. So it's uh, as you'd expect. I mean, I was looking at the share price. I mean, the highest price it reached before the 
pandemic was, I think, according to my screen, somewhere around 67p or so. And the share price now is, is getting up, heading towards a 100p, I think. But it's been a, a very volatile ride, as you'd expect, with these very small cap companies. And uh, as you say, the uh, annual results may somewhat flatter the picture. But even so, you can hardly complain with 141% return over a 12-month period. That's uh, certainly quite impressive. And if you caught that one at the lows, you'll have done very well indeed. Let's move on and talk about Oryx International Growth, OIG. They've also had some annual results, so I think to the 31st of March on this occasion. That's right. And in that period, their NAV total return was up 86%, while their share price total return was up 122%. So they had positive performance from all the top 10 holdings. Companies such as uh, Renel Dix AI uh, did particularly well, up over 300%, and EKF Diagnostics up over 200%. So that certainly worked well for them. But this is, a, again, quite a specialist portfolio. Um, a gentleman called Christopher Mills of Harwood Capital has been responsible for this one for a number of years. And it is, I think it's fair to say, a kind of stock picker's portfolio. also has some unquoted holdings uh, in it as well. So there's a company called um, Source Bioscience that actually IPO'd during this period as well, which obviously would have benefited the investment trust. But the manager is apparently optimistic of further progress in um, the financial year for 2022. And there's uh, more disposals and another IPO in the pipeline. So that's all going well for them. Well, that again is a terrific return. To get to the top of the league table uh, in this current period, certainly if your year end was April, March or April, you really had to perform very well to get to uh, real boasting rights, but often coming from quite a low base, obviously, because of the effects we've talked about before. Okay, so let's move on and talk about uh, some overseas trusts now. Well, let's uh, start off with Atlantis Japan Growth, AJG, who've also had some annual results, probably not quite so good, I imagine. Well, that's right. So the annual results, uh, again, to the 30th of April, in which time they generated an NAV total return of 23%, that compared with the Topics Index up 16%. In share price terms, they did even better, up 31% as their discount narrowed from about 15% into about a 9%. Um, they performed particularly strongly in the first half of that financial year as a result of their exposure to growth stocks in technology, pharmaceutical and machinery sectors. Uh, and then in the second half, probably less good as we saw that market rotation from growth to value. But uh, certainly a decent period is uh, someone called Teiko Setaishi, of uh, an outfit called ARC, who's been responsible for this one since the start of May 2016. But they also pay an enhanced dividend as well. So that's where um, the dividend is generated from uh, income and capital. In other words, realised profits are paid back to shareholders in the form of a dividend. So that's, in this particular case, it's set on a quarterly basis of 1% of the NAV. And that is that is entirely paid out of capital reserves. So for their financial year, uh, to the 30th of April 2021, they paid 2.17p. Okay, and just quickly remind us, this one sits, uh, I think it's mainly smaller companies, is it? I think the AIC has it in the Japanese smaller companies sector. How do you look at it and, and how does it compare to others? I always hesitate to mention <laughs> which sector a trust is, but knowing your important role on the AIC Statistics Committee. So, But you might look at it your own way, who knows? Well, you know, we do like to be slightly different on occasion, but in this particular instance, we, we concur with the wise heads of the AOC Stats Committee. Uh, we have it in Japanese smaller companies as well. And it is worth noting that this investment trust has a, a definitely a growth bias. So it sits alongside companies such as Bailey Gifford Shin Nippon, uh, the JP Morgan Japan Small 
cap growth and income, which also has an enhanced dividend policy. But if you look at the five-year NAV total return numbers, Atlantis Japan growth is up 81% over that period. And that compares with 106% for Bailey Gifford Shin Nippon and 78% for the JP Morgan Fund. Okay, so we'll move on and we'll talk about a property trust. This is Schroeder European Real Estate Investment Trust, S-E-R-E. How have they done? Yep, so they had interim results out for the six months to the end of March. Yeah, a little bit of a mixed picture. So the NAV per share was down 2%, uh, and that reflected uh, a write-down to a shopping centre in Seville. And they actually uh, wrote that down to nil. Um, Perhaps unsurprisingly, that particular uh, property asset had been hit quite hard by COVID. And I think that was probably a 4% hit to the NAV overall. Though they did have better news in terms of some of their industrial assets, um, in terms of NAV total return, they were just slightly in negative territory, down 0.4%. So the property portfolio was valued at uh, 203 million euros, uh, with a like-for-like valuation growth of 2.3% over that particular period. Um, but it's always worth looking in terms of the income generation. And again, the rent collection for that half year came in about 92%. So they have had some positive news, and this is something that we're aware of already. They've sold a property in Paris They've made some good profits on that one, and they're actually going to pay some of that back as a special dividend to to shareholders. And they're also looking to move the dividend back up as well. So effectively, they've they've reinstated the pre-COVID dividend of one spot eight five cents per share. So the board have kind of noted the discount on which this investment trust company uh, trades. And given their now strong cash position, they're going to keep an eye on that uh, with the options of a share buyback program and or new acquisitions. Okay, so that will be one to keep under the spotlight, see what emerges on that score. Okay, let's move on and talk about a specialist trust. This is Geiger Counter, GCL, and they've had some results too. Yeah, again, a spectacular set of results. This is interim results for the six months to the end of March this year, in which time their NAV was up 108%. That compared with rises of 78%, 59% for their relevant indices. Uh, the share price, nearly as good as the NAV, it was up 99.5%. And apparently that strong performance was a result of public policy support for nuclear power to limit carbon emissions which resulted in increased uranium purchases and increased duration of contracts with utility companies. So uh, as you rightly observed, this is a very specialist uh, investment trust company. It's, it's relatively small, to be fair, about £37 million, but it's investment in companies involved in the exploration, development and production of uranium. Uh, and it's managed by Keith Watson and Robert Crayford of New City Investment Managers. So yeah, very specialist uranium investing trust. That's obviously something you might want to... Uh put in on some occasions and not on others, because like all commodities, it would be very fairly volatile over time. But I guess one issue there is if this move towards ESG and the, and the whole move towards carbon reduction goes on, it is possible that nuclear power may make something of a comeback. It was uh, being stalled a little bit, uh, because there are people who argue that it actually is one of the ways we're going to have to use in order to uh, achieve the carbon reduction targets or a net zero world by the deadline that's been set. Interesting to see whether that happens. Price of uranium, I think, has done pretty well recently compared to, uh, well, as have many other commodities. Let's move on and talk about Henderson Diversified Income Trust, HDIV, and they've had something to say as well. 
They have indeed. They've announced their annual results for the year to the 30th of April, uh, in which time they generated an NAV total return of 13.5%. Now, that compares to a rise of 2.2% for their current benchmark, which is the average return on a rolling annual basis of three-month sterling LIBOR, plus 2%. Obviously, that's not going to work for them going forward uh, with the abolition of LIBOR. So actually, their new benchmark will be a hybrid but that benchmark was up 15.5%, so obviously they were just slightly behind that. But the share price total return was up 10.7% in the period. But as mentioned, the board is looking to change the investment objective of benchmark to recognise that change to LIBRON. There will be a vote on that at the AGM on the 16th of September. But um, a very interesting report on what's going on with the bond markets. John Petullo and Jenna Banyard, uh, very experienced uh, investors, some really interesting comments with regard to inflation. They're very much of the view that uh, on the longer term, at least, we're going to move towards a more deflationary world. And in their view, inflation is predominantly a cyclical and transitory phenomenon. Okay, so there's a view to put into the hopper and compare with all those who say that uh, yields must be rising in the current environment. Certainly worth looking at that, I would think. Let's move on and talk about Jupiter Green Investment Trust, JGC. I think we know here, I seem to recall that the manager left recently or said he was leaving. Uh, What have their results been like? Yep, so they announced their annual results for the year to the 31st of March, in which time they generated an NAV total return of 53%. However, that compared with a rise of 61% for their benchmark. In share price returns or share price total return, that was up 64.5%. And that reflected the fact that the discount narrowed in the period from 7% to nearer to 1%. But you're absolutely right. John Wallace took over from Charlie Thomas uh, earlier this year. Whether that results in a particularly marked change to the portfolio remains to be seen. But again, this is a relatively small uh, investment trust. It's got a market cap of about 53 million or so at the moment. Okay, and then finally, we're going to come to uh, Sequoia Economic Infrastructure Income, SEQI. They've had some results. So this is another infrastructure trust, obviously enough from its name. What have they had to say? So they had their annual results out for the year to the end of March, in which time their NAV increased from 96.7p to 103.2p. And that reflected uh, credit spreads returning to normalised levels following the sharp deterioration towards the end of the previous financial year. So in total return terms, their NAV was up 13.5%. And in share price terms, even better, up 17.4%. Obviously, the income is an important part of this story, and their uh, total dividend six spot two five p that was fully covered by cash, uh, and that was up from the previous year, and it was in line with target. And they're going to continue to target that six spot two five p for their next financial year. In other words, providing scope, they hope to increase their cash coverage. But this is different from a number of the infrastructure funds because this invests in a debt. And certainly recently, they had about 70, 72 investments across eight different sectors, of which 93% of the portfolio was in private debt. Okay, so that brings us to the end of the announcements this week. We might just spend a couple of minutes talking about um, what's happened so far this year again. We talked about some of that aspects of that at the beginning of the uh, podcast. But you have been writing about this, Simon. Why don't we just talk a little bit about the uh, the discount movement, shall we? I mean, one of the things that strikes me looking at some of the tables and charts you produce is that, as so often, there's quite significant changes in discounts. Overall, the discount might have saved roughly the same, but in terms of individual sectors and individual trusts, there have been some quite wide variations between those who've seen discounts narrow and those that have seen discounts widen again. And that is the normal pattern, presumably. 
No, I think that's right. And and obviously every week we talk about the sector average discount, but within that is hidden a, a multitude of different situations. So if we look at all the different subsectors across the investment company sector, uh, of which there are the best part of 50 or so, then the small majority have actually been derated so far in 2021, or certainly in the first six months of the year. So funnily enough, global equities, the global sector, which includes names such as Witten, Scottish Mortgage, F&C, uh, we've seen that derated considerably this year, mainly because Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust has moved from a premium to a small discount. And at the other end, we've seen some of the property funds bounce back, actually. I think we talked at the start of the year about how property was cheap, certainly notionally cheap on a discount basis. The discounts were very wide by historical standards. And actually, we have seen those discounts move in. So it is a mixed picture. And uh, as always, it it probably pays to do your homework a little bit, just see where the value is and and just really ask, are those discounts justified? Is there a good reason for it? Or is there a a case where they might uh, tighten in uh, a change of circumstances? Yeah, so it's always interesting to look through those. And just quickly, just to round it out, we might look at the best and worst performers year to date. Let's take the NAVs, first of all, because that's the bit that the managers uh, on the whole themselves can control. Uh, What the rating is, is largely dependent on what uh, investors think about the performance. So just looking at the six months of the year, obviously more interesting than just one month. There at the top is Geiger Counter. Indeed. So if you pick that one, you would have done well. That's been up. NAV return, uh, what, 54.8%. Uh, but looking down the list, what other names would you pick out from that uh, from that list, Sam? Well, I think it, it, it's something that you mentioned earlier, that the UK small cap has been a great place to be this year. And again, I think we can understand the reasons why. I mean, it had been a little bit unloved, and yet the UK market has bounced back, and particularly those mid and small cap names. So names that we talked about quite often, Aberforth Smaller Companies, up 32% in NEV terms for the first six months. Riverland Mercantile UK Microcap, up 34%. Uh, and you go down the list and there are a few more UK small cap names as well. But in addition to that, we've seen some other interesting things bounce back. So actually, some of the commodity and resource plays have done quite well. So we've talked perhaps about City Natural Resources up uh, 25% in NAV terms the first six months. And there'll be other names as well, such as the ones in the BlackRock stable that won't be too far behind them. But where there are winners, there are always losers, sadly. And it's certainly been a tough year for uh, some of the Japanese investment trusts. Japan has been a tricky market. And again, looking at those NAV performances for the first six months, Atlantis Japan growth that we mentioned earlier, that was down 10% in the first half of the year. JP Morgan Japanese down 9%, Aberdeen Japan down 6%. So certainly Japan features quite heavily in the uh, the losers board, certainly for that first six months of the year. Yes, that's interesting. And of course, so that might in, in turn, of course, create some opportunities. What's happened to the discounts in the Japanese sector has that actually accentuated the decline or has it just moderated it somewhat? No, I think it's a good point. So you have seen some of those discounts uh, widen out. So let me just uh, give you some of the numbers here. So the the current average discount, certainly on the more mainstream Japanese funds uh, at the moment, probably stands at 6-7%. And that's wider than we've seen it on average for the previous 12 months. So within that, we have double-digit discounts for Aberdeen Japan. That's on a 13% discount. CC Japan Income and Growth, which I think we talked about in the last week or so, on 11% discount. Fidelity Japan on a 10% discount. Schroeder Japan Growth on 11% discount. So those double-digit discounts very much in evidence. And actually, even the Bailey Gifford funds as well that um, have historically traded uh, on premium ratings, often quite elevated premium ratings. Well, Bailey Gifford Japan is probably around about NAV at the moment. So there has been a derating. 
there's certainly been a derating, and uh, it's not our job to talk about this, but uh, on occasions it can be profitable to look at those sectors which have moved out to discounts which are wider than their historic averages because there is an element of mean reversion over time. Uh, we talked about what happened to the Chinese trusts and the uh, Scottish mortgage trusts uh, at the end of last year when they got to very high premiums and then came back down towards par. Indeed, in some cases, like Scottish mortgage actually went to a discount for a while. So just uh, prima facie, that's worth having a look at that particular area without... Uh, saying whether one's a good idea or not or at this particular moment in time. But uh, in general terms, that's what uh, the professional investors do. Is it not, Simon? That's what they look at. They look at the discounts relative to past experience and relative to what they think might be happening in the world. I, I think that's probably right. I think there are always some professional investors who, who like to take a contrarian stance uh, with investment trust companies. And, you know, mathematically, if you pick up an investment trust with an asset class that's out of favour and therefore invariably on a wide discount, that asset class comes back into favour uh, and starts performing and you see the discount narrow in. And that's the kind of double whammy positive effect. And that can obviously generate some quite significant outperformance. Though the reverse is also true, as you said, you know, you, you pick a, an inform asset class and it suddenly struggles a little bit and you get the derating. And that's why investment trusts can really see very attractive returns or equally uh, can be quite painful at times. And also in that context, it's worth looking at those trusts which uh, perhaps in these situations do have discount control mechanisms. I mean, that's if they do, then obviously that gives you some reason to believe that they may be taking steps to uh, address a, a significant premium or a significant discount. Remind us how many trusts in the sector, in the equity sector at least, have discount control mechanisms, very roughly. It's slightly hard to put an exact number on it because many have a discount policy. Those that actually have hard and fast discount targets, where they've said we will defend a particular level, they are much fewer in nature. So just to kind of give you a rough number off the top of my head, I would say there's probably about 30 or so in that camp that give an explicit target. But I always think actions speak louder than words, to be perfectly honest, in this context. So even when an investment trust has stated a target, it doesn't invariably mean they always stick to it. Whereas conversely, other investment trust companies haven't given that particular guidance. But because of their buyback programs, it's quite obvious that they are protecting a particular level. Yes, indeed. And that's something which you can really find out by observation or by reading uh, excellent research reports from whatever source you tend to uh, favour. Okay, Simon, well, that's, I think, all we've got time for this week. It's been another interesting week. It always is. We've got some uh, more football before we speak again. Uh, I dare say that may keep one or two people away from their desks on Monday. Uh, who knows? Uh, but <laughs> whether that has an impact on trading volumes, I don't know. Whether the average uh, investment trust investor is more inclined to be a football fan than uh, other people, I don't know. But um, we shall have to see. Thanks again for your time, Simon. We look forward to speaking again next week. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.